you know, every morning I wake up and I go, oh my God, how is it that I am so privileged to be alive right now? Because on the one hand, we have these incredible threats. On the other hand, we have these exciting solutions that are coming on board and are supporting each other in their speed and scales. Hello, everyone. This is Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA, and you're listening to the Optimistic Outlook podcast. Early in my career, I worked at IBM, and at first, I almost couldn't believe how lucky I was to be there. You see, I'd studied mathematics. I'd planned to go to graduate school and become a math professor like my parents. I never saw myself working for a major corporation. But IBM had come to my school recruiting math majors, and I figured I should go see what it was all about. Well, it didn't take me long to see that I wouldn't be applying for grad school. You see, from the beginning, I got to work with teams on projects that really mattered, projects that were critical to national security. And, you know, I can't tell you about these early projects because they were classified, but I can tell you what they taught me. They taught me that the North Star for my career would be purpose. Finding ways to work with teams trying to solve tough problems, teams that were developing technologies to shape a better future. My optimism is an extension of this. Optimism is what gives me the confidence that the problems we confront are solvable, even problems as big and as daunting as climate change. Now, today, I'm going to introduce you to a fellow optimist who's been at the very center of the global effort to address the climate crisis. You'll learn in this episode how her view comports with optimism and outrage. From 2010 to 2016, Cristina Figueres was the Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. She's going to bring us inside how she went from feeling hopeless after a COP meeting in Copenhagen. Hopeless that global action to address climate change just would never gain traction, to ultimately leading the process that secured the Paris Climate Agreement. You'll also hear Christiana share her perspective on where climate action stands today and her priorities for the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference, COP28, in Dubai. Christiana is the co-founder of Global Optimism. It's an organization that invites people and businesses from all over the world to face the climate crisis head on and build a better world. I'm going to encourage you to listen to Christiana's TED Talk, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And I'm also going to encourage you, if you don't already, to listen to Christiana's podcast, Outrage Plus Optimism, which every week explores stories behind the headlines on climate change. The podcast helps listeners see how we can turn challenges into opportunities. All right, take a listen. Christiana, it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, Barbara, I'm really delighted. Thank you very much for the invitation. I know you were supposed to ask me questions, but I have first a question for you. Yes, ma'am. I know how much work it is to do a podcast. So here's my question. How on earth do you make time for that, being also the CEO of Siemens USA? I mean, it is just amazing. Do you do this between two and three in the morning? <laughs> Christiana, uh, first of all, I think like, um, yeah, I think I'm very fortunate to have an excellent team. And I really count on them for a lot of the preparation. But we have such great dialogue about the kinds of things we want to be telling. And it's a theme I've heard from you listening to your messaging that right now is an important time to tell the stories of yeah. success. And so this, I consider it, that this is to so be true. a core part of the work I do. 
Okay, well, I am very glad to hear that because honestly, I think we have for such a long time ignored the power of narrative, especially when it's positive narrative, right? We have just ignored that so terribly. And so kudos to you for uh, for this podcast that always has a positive narrative um, because we really have to almost balance all the bad news that we receive every day. You know, the, the, the mantra, if it bleeds, it leaves, is still true about the media. Uh, and, and so it's, it, it, it requires such an intentional, um, specific effort to not deny the bad news that we're getting, especially on climate change and war these days but to also balance it with the positive things that we're doing. So kudos to you for an amazing, positive, um, balancing effort there. It takes real discipline to focus on the things that yes. really are in our control. And and yeah, actually, this true. is where I want to start the conversation, Christiana. Okay. I mean, many of the technology conversations I'm having today, I'm, I'm touching on the need to address the climate crisis. And you've all actually been involved. I wonder why, Barbara. I wonder why. Let me see. <laughs> but I mean, you've been involved in this work of building a sustainable future now for decades. Um, really, actually, you, you know, long before many of us were even aware there was an issue or that could it could be addressed. How did you first learn about climate change and, and what led you to get involved in solving the problem? Well, I'm going to immediately date myself here, happily date myself. Um, I awoke to the realities of climate change way back in the 90s, uh, way back. So so just for those who don't know that there was a century before the century that we're in, that is literally last century, okay? 1990s is when I uh, woke up to the realities of climate change. And I came to climate change actually not through energy, where I gravitated later, but through nature, because I became aware, being a citizen of Costa Rica and having been grown up here, and it's a it's a spectacular country that holds five percent of all biodiversity of the world, although we're a tiny, tiny little postage stamp country. But we have always been very close to nature as citizens. And uh, when I was a, uh, a a mother, a new mother, I discovered that one species, which is the golden toad that I had seen when I was young and that made me totally fall in love with nature, that species had actually gone extinct between my seeing them as a teenager and then my becoming a mother in my early 30s. And I was just devastated. I was devastated that I had witnessed the extinction of a species and I very quickly derived the conclusion, aha, if I in this tiny little country have seen the extinction of one species, it must mean that many species are going extinct. And what the heck is happening? So I started to read myself into what then became climate change um, in order to understand what was happening. And as soon as I learned that energy is actually 75% of the problem of climate change, I went, right, that's where I'm going to the 75% of the problem. So yeah, um, I guess that means I have been in this for what, 40 years, I guess. Yeah, but there was a really critical moment in that 40 years. Uh, from 2010 to 2016, you were the executive secretary 
of the UN Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change, you were tasked with creating a global climate agreement. And I heard your TED Talk. I understand you started out really unsure if a global climate agreement was even possible. Then fast forward roughly half a decade, and you successfully led the process for the landmark Paris Climate Agreement. Bring us inside what happened at that event. Well, it will not surprise you um, that um, that it was the energy and the power and the the transformational capacity of a mindset of optimism that really took us from where we were in 2010 to where we ended up in uh, Paris at the end of 2015. And um, and that arc of transformation was was pretty radical because I call myself, together with thousands of other people, a Copenhagen survivor, which means those of us who went to Copenhagen to negotiate what we thought was then a global agreement on climate. Uh, and in fact, everyone had renamed the city. It wasn't Copenhagen, it was Hopenhagen because there was so much hope for a global agreement. And that ended up in a major disaster. But because there had been so much work and preparation and 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 expectation and ambition baked into that, we were just on the floor. We were devastated with what happened there. Both us and I was a government um, negotiator at that time, but I worked very closely with the Secretariat of the Climate Convention. And so I knew that they were devastated, we were devastated. NGOs were devastated. I mean, it was just, honestly, the global mood on climate was in the trash can. And when the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon asked me to take this over, um, he he also didn't think that there was a global agreement in the cards at all. He just said, just pick up the political process from where it is and see what you can do with it. Just do something. Um, but it was very interesting because I very early on realized that the consequences of not reaching in a short period of time, a global ar- agreement were so devastating for the planet, for humanity, for nature, for everything that we love, that I just thought I just can't stand by and just tread water he- here as long as I am leading this process. Um, I have to actually first change my own mindset from doom to maybe there is a possibility of something. Let's have a better mindset. And then change the mindset of everyone who works at the Secretariat, 500 people strong, fantastic team. And then change the mindset of all the country delegates who were so furious with each other, they didn't even want to talk to each other, let alone meet and start working again. And then all the stakeholders on the outside of the government, so all private sector and NGOs, et cetera. And, and that was not done quickly or easily. It was a, a, a several-year process, but had a very significant effect, proving that mindsets tend to be self-fulfilling. If we go into a process with a mindset of defeat, fatalism, we probably won't achieve whatever it is that we're supposed to. But if we go in with a mindset of expectation, of ambition, of of um of optimism, then there is never a secured, guaranteed success, but at least we have a better chance. So optimism helps forge a new path. Optimism changes everything. I, you know, it's interesting because I have seen a lot of work done on climate where it seems like the first moment is 
let's show people everything there is to be afraid of. And instead, then we see a shift to let's show people what there is to hope for. And, and that sounds like it's what led you to the successful outcome in Paris. And, and you actually have this podcast called Outrage and Optimism. I'm trying to figure out how outrage fits into this. Um, well, you have actually just explained it um, as you were introducing that question, Barbara, because the fact is there is no denying that we are just hugely delayed in our climate action. Um, and everything that we have seen this year, obviously, uh, in terms of climate impacts confirms the fact that we are just incredibly behind schedule. So this year, just in case, you know, people haven't noticed or already forgot, we saw floods in Libya, India, Hong Kong, Greece. We saw incredible heat waves in, in Europe. We saw wildfires in, in Canada. Ocean temperatures were the highest ever. In fact, in fact, during several months, we hit temperatures that have been the highest not in one or two or three hundred years, in 120,000 years. And it is very possible that by the time we get to the end of this year, that this will be the hottest year ever. So we're breaking temperature records everywhere. And, and we're having all of the consequential effects of runaway climate change. So our outrage that we, we, uh, we always emphasize in the, in the podcast is the fact that despite the fact that we have most of the technologies, we have the finance, we know what policies we're supposed to be implementing, despite, and we have the science, despite that, that we're so far behind. So we're outraged, outraged by the delay, outraged by the non-action. We are outraged and we have to be able to set that forward because otherwise we fall into Pollyanna land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Technologies are progressing exponentially, which they are, and we'll get into that. But we have to set it side by side. There are two realities that are actually side by side, and we have to be able to see them in equal importance. One reality is what we have not done and the effects that we're seeing. The other reality is particularly on technology, not so on nature yet, but particularly on technology, how we are actually even way forward, way faster um, than we ever thought would be possible because we're seeing exponential change in many of the uh, energy technologies. But we definitely want to balance, Barbara, the outrage with the optimism. Uh, well, and yes, I'm totally with you on that. And, and I do want to talk about the technology. But first, I want to get your definition of optimism because, you know, you know we touch on things like a Pollyanna, rose-colored glasses, uh, and clearly that is not your definition. Tell me what you mean. So what we mean by optimism is a couple of things. First, we mean an optimism that is grounded in reality, grounded in the science, if it's optimism about climate change, grounded in the science, grounded in reality, grounding in the evidence that we're seeing, absolutely grounded in that, but not limited by that reality. And it's also not an optimism that is the result of having achieved something or some success, I call that a celebration. And frankly, we don't celebrate our uh, our successes enough, so we should celebrate more. 
But celebration and optimism is different. Celebration is the result of having achieved something. Optimism for us is not the output. It's the input. It's the mindset. It is the, the focus of our attention and our conviction that we actually have everything that it takes to solve a problem, whether that is uh, climate change in this case or anything else. And, you know, I mean, if you take it to the personal level, Barbara, if you decide that, I don't know, that you want to run a marathon, well, you can start by saying, well, you know, I'm not I'm not in shape and I have never really run and da, da, da. And you can think of all of the negative things and you probably won't run the marathon. If, however, you think, yeah, that's true, I have never run and I'm out of shape, but here's what I can do to change that reality. Well, you probably won't win the marathon, but there is a good chance that you will be able to finish it. And that is what we're talking about. We're talking about the transformational power of the mindset with which you engage, not succumb to, but engage with a challenge. That deep-seated confidence that the tools are there and we have the ability to tackle it. And okay, so let's let's get into what is the recent evidence that gives us that confidence? Because I'm with you here. We know that technologies have arrived that give us tools to accelerate progress. Uh, we know that we, when we combine that technology with the changes that are being made, whether it's the Paris Climate Agreement or legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, when we put these things together, we get to the tipping point faster. It's an important time to talk about the positive success stories. What's working well right now, in your view, in advancing decarbonization? And how will the events of this last year impact our progress? Yeah. Well, let, let me first say what we're not advancing well on, which is everything to do with nature. And that is a huge concern uh, because we have to bring it up to where energy, the energy sector is. It's fascinating to hear you talk about nature in this way. Tell us more about your view of the role that nature must play in our future. Well, you know, Barbara, I, I do it out of self-discipline because, um, because I got into climate change very quickly on the energy side. Um, I, I tend sometimes to forget the nature thing, and so I'm just constantly reminding myself. Um, and one fantastic person who works on oceans gave me many, many years ago a little blue marble and said, carry this marble with you so that you don't forget the oceans. And I don't forget the ocean now because I live right in front of the ocean. But it is it is too easy for those of us to sort of think techie. It's too easy to go into techie, I don't know, um, Alice in Wonderland, right? Um, and the fact is that, yes, technology is advancing very quickly and needs to continue to do so. But if we do not restore nature, we simply will not have a planet. It's just that easy. And let's think about it very, very simply like this. Every drop of water that we drink does not come from a machine. It comes from nature. Every molecule of oxygen that we breathe does not come from a machine. It comes from nature. Every morsel of food, except that one which is, you know, completely made out of plastic and junk, comes from nature. And we forget, Barbara, that we completely depend on nature. We, for our survival, it's not just for our comfort, 
We depend on technology for our comfort, but we depend on nature for our survival. And we have to get that relationship straight. And we have been extracting and abusing nature for way too long since the Industrial Revolution began. And so we have to be able to reverse that and be able to return to nature the regenerative capacity, the resilience that nature used to have. If oceans, oceans are absorbing right now most of the heat that we are producing with our technologies. If oceans get to a tipping point where they're no longer able to absorb that heat, our temperature around the planet will soar very, very quickly. So whether it's taking care of oceans or whether it's taking care of the land, restoring the soil, regenerating our, our forests, taking care of our forest cover, either way, oceans or, or land, or in fact, oceans and land, because we have to do both, we have to have that because otherwise we do not have a planet to live on. It's as simple as that. I'll refer our listeners to an earlier episode on Project Drawdown and recognizing yes. that we can get to that point where regeneration begins to happen. That's exciting. Exactly. And the second thing that you have me thinking about is the fact that we have the tools of AI, the fact that we have been unlocking the genetic code means that we now have new ways of understanding nature itself and, and possibly being able to more fully understand the role we can play in helping with that restoration. Well, absolutely. And, you know, everything surrounding biomimicry, I think I'm very interested in now um, because the fact is nature na nature has been doing what we need to do for about 4.5 billion years, right? She has figured out everything that there is to, uh, to do about resilience and, and regrowth. And so if we can learn from her and really use biomimicry in our solutions, in our designs, we would be much more in tune with, uh, with our future, actually. We say things happen slowly and then all at once. Yes, and, exactly. And, and we're seeing that everywhere we look. On this podcast, I've had the pleasure of talking to people who have alternatives to cement. Uh, we've just interviewed uh, a, a founder who is growing cement you, using nature-based uh, models in order to learn how to build the materials that will build our infrastructure of the future. The other part of that, everything to do with energy, is incredibly exciting because change is actually happening way faster than we ever thought possible. Just on renewable energy, especially wind and solar, um, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, um, has always predicted linear growth of uh, of of uh, solar and wind and other renewables. And slowly, slowly, they have come to realize it, that's not on linear growth, it's on an exponential curve. And hence, the cost of renewable electricity has plummeted over the past year to 60, 70, and, some, and sometimes 80% of what it used to be um, it, just five or eight years ago, meaning that the deployment is much faster than could ever have been uh, forecasted. And wind and solar are now cheaper than fossil fuels in most geographies. What that actually means for this decade, which is the critical decade, the decade of the 20s, is that we are now um, set to supply 
somewhere between 30 to 40% of all power on the, on the global grid coming from solar and wind by 2030. That's just solar and wind. That does not include hydro, geothermal, you know, the other renewables as well. So, um, so much, much faster um, than we thought. And of course, the corollary to that is that fossil fuel demand is on a steep decline as it should be. Um, the other example that I love to share is what's happening with EVs, because that is also just totally mind-boggling and, uh, and going exponential very, very quickly. In 2019, we thought that um, car sales would be EV somewhere around 15% of total car sales by 2030. The fact is that we reached that 15% by 2022, which is eight years earlier than we predicted. And in all leading markets right now, we have actually crossed the tipping point that you were talking about, Barbara, with EU and China seeing that uh, that EVs are cheaper to own than, uh, than fossil fuel cars. And what that means for this decade, which again is the critical decade, is that we are actually on track. Um, to seeing that by 2030, two-thirds of all new car sales will be EV sales, two-thirds by 2030. So that is incredibly, incredibly exciting. Now, as I said before, what is not yet on this exponential path is certainly everything to do with nature and also everything to do with what energy people call or industry people call the hard-to-abate sectors that I like to call the have to abate sectors because we can't leave them out, right? Steel, shipping, aviation, cement, iron, all of that are, yes, energy intensive and more difficult, but we are seeing exponential growth in green hydrogen, among other things. So I suspect that we will be going exponentially uh, into the decarbonization of those sectors as well. I, I wonder, Christiana, if you're following the same technological developments I am when it comes to the grid. Uh, so here we are, we've got these converging megatrends, uh, you know, that we've been tracking climate change, but also urbanization and as well, the aging demographics of people all around the world, the digitalization of everything, the globalization, or now we say at Siemens, the globalization of the supply chains. Uh, we've got AI emerging. We've got the ability to, you know, unlock the secrets of the gene. All of that requires compute power. All of that requires electrified data centers. And, and what we're finding, especially here in the United States, where so much of that digital economy is based, is that power is the gating factor. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm curious, as you follow this, we at Siemens are doing everything we can to bring storage solutions online so that renewables can be ever more effective. We're doing things to bring software into the grid edge so that we can rebalance and make the best use of the electricity that we are generating and uh, finding new, more um, uh, ways to preserve power across transformation, solid state electronics to help us, again, get more out of the electricity we're producing. Are you following the trends in this field? And, and what do you see as some of the most promising developments? Well, I am following it with excitement, obviously, right? Because, and, and, and the trick here, Barbara, as you have already done, 
is to follow the intersection of all of this, right? Not just the digitalization on its own, not just the electrification on its own, not just smart grids on their own, it's AI on its own, but rather the fact that all of this is intersecting and supporting um, each other, which means that we um, are standing right in the midst of exponential transformative change. And that is incredibly exciting. And because, as I said before, because energy is 75% of greenhouse gases and therefore could be 75% of the solution, that's the exciting piece, right? And so the fact that we have all of these tools available to us and standing on the on the shoulders, of course, of policy, as you say, then um, is, uh, it, it is just really exciting for us to see that we might just barely squeeze in under the door of the slamming shut to us in 200 uh, in 2030 and that we might be creating here a world that has ubiquitous clean cheap energy available to all um and of course based on all of these uh accelerating factors so I'm just so delighted and I, I constantly, you know, every morning I wake up and I go, oh my God, how is it that I am so privileged to be alive right now? Because on the one hand, we have these incredible threats. On the other hand, we have these exciting solutions that are coming on board and are supporting each other in their speed and scale. So I, I tend to think of it, Barbara, as two competing uh, exponential curves, the exponential curve of disaster uh, that we have in front of us. And I, I, you know, all you have to do is, uh, is see the um, news to see what that is, but also the exponential curve of solutions. And they're both competing with each other. And will they successfully intersect by 2030? That is the question. And now time to scale. But there's still more I'll say policy to be set. And in fact, we're speaking now just weeks ahead of COP28 that'll happen in Dubai. And I'd love to hear what your out, what your goals are, uh, what you're hoping are the outcomes of COP28. Well, it's always difficult to do crystal balling with any COP, um, especially with this one. But let's say um, what would be ideal, okay? It's not that uh, what is going to come out, but what would be ideal? Ideal would be a recognition of the fact um, that the 1.5 degree temperature rise that is scientifically set as the maximum temperature rise that keeps us more or less safe, that that is really um, very much in question now. And because we have been so late, the outrage of that part, um, and that uh, in the face of that, we have to really double down. And so we need, and if, of course, the decision is made that all countries agree to two things, triple renewables deployment from where they are now and double efficiency gains from where we are now, as well as to phase out, because right now the decision is phased down fossil fuels, we need to phase them out, um, then we actually stand a chance of getting back on course with what the Paris Agreement put out as guardrails 
to eventually get to net zero uh, global economy by 2050? Well, what we know is that times of disruption give us the best opportunity to shape the future. It's, Indeed. It's times like this where everyone is questioning everything. So I, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. My, the, my favorite question to ask guests at the end of our conversations is, um, give us a picture. Help us to understand what we're striving for. What does the world look like if we're successful in reaching the tipping point, accelerating and scaling solutions the way you know we can? What is it, what is it that we are looking forward to? Well, it, it would be a very exciting world if we're able to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 50% from where we are right now by the end of this decade, which is the challenge, the immediate challenge that we have right now. Then, Barbara, we open to a, a door to a world that is incredibly exciting. And so first of all, you know, nature would be regenerated rather than having the deforestation rates and the degradation of soils, et cetera, et cetera, that we have now, we would have a completely regenerated nature that is able to feed everyone on this planet, um, as well as support all of the, the web of life, all of the ecosystems upon which we depend. And then on the energy side, so just think, well, just think cities. Cities could have every single surface, whether it is Oh, a, a, a wall of buildings or whether it is the rooftop, every single surface could be producing clean, cheap energy for that building, but also so much more that the building would be able to put into the grid everything else that is, um, that is not being used. Think of uh, water catchment on all roofs. Think of um, EVs and public transport that have been optimized to the point where not everybody is driving a fossil fuel car, but rather we have shared and automated and responsive to each other in a system because of AI um, transportation so that we don't have these congested, polluted cities. We would actually have cities that have turned many of the parking lots let's say into gardens or vegetable gardens, how cool would that be? Or children's playgrounds. How cool would it be to live in a city that is silent, Barbara? We have become used to the incredible noise pollution of fossil fuel cars. How cool would it be to live in a city that is silent and does not have air pollution? Hence, our children are actually not dying from lung cancer and asthma. I mean, it, it is just such an exciting, and above all, because I come from a developing country, let's remember that that reality, that vision can never be just one that is for the global north. It has to also be open to the global south, because otherwise, we're just not going to make it. Christiana Figueres, thank you so much for sharing your vision. I so appreciate having this conversation with you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Barbara. There are so many aspects of this conversation that will stick with me for a long time, but one in particular is the key development that should be galvanizing optimism, which is the rise of technology. The race to net zero is on, and technology combined with government action is making it a race to the top. 
because even a decade ago, it would have been difficult to imagine how we'd win this race. But today, the tools we need are available. They're even in use. We just need to achieve a greater scale and move faster. And that's a solvable problem. I'll close things out here with a business perspective. Why I know our customers supporting industry and infrastructure are ready to move faster. It's because the technological transition needed for climate action makes good business sense. It's practical. It leads not only to decarbonization, but higher productivity. Those same tools lead to greater resiliency and even drive cost savings. I look forward to sharing more on this in future episodes. And please head to the show notes for more about Christiana and what we've discussed. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on social media and on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in.